So the reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. Matthew 8, 1 to 22. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cured of leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would and his servant was healed that very hour. When Jesus came to Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Well, it was just over a few days ago that uh, Barack Obama was sworn in for his second term as President of the United States of America. Uh, There's no doubt that Barack Obama is one of the great orators of our time. He is a powerful and passionate speaker. When he stands up to speak... You want to hear what this man has to say. Even if you don't agree with his politics, you're gripped by what it is that he says. He inspires people when he speaks. But it's also the big criticism of Barack Obama, isn't it? That he's all talk and no action. Sure, what he says is great, but how about backing it up by doing something? How about some action? Uh, it's not hard to see where the, uh, where the criticisms are going to come from for the president. Uh, they're going to come from the other side of politics in the United States. 
They're the ones who are saying, well, he can talk the talk, but he hasn't managed to walk the walk. He hasn't managed to back up his words with actions. I remember seeing a State of the Union address that he did very soon after becoming president in his first term. This is to a joint sitting of the houses in the in Washington. During his speech, there were 40 standing ovations. That's how much he captivated the hearts and minds of the people that were listening to him. But at the very end of the talk, again, at the very end of the speech, people were saying, all talk, no action. Just a bunch of words. Where are the concrete actions to back it up? Well, if you've read through the first seven chapters of Matthew's Gospel, you could be asking the very same question of Jesus. That's great words, Jesus, but where are the actions to back it up? Uh, We've heard a lot of what you've got to say, and we heard a lot of what people think about you, but what about the actions? What about backing it up with some concrete actions? Now, we're jumping into the middle of Matthew's Gospel today. We're going to be starting at the beginning of chapter 8. So, it was chapters 1 to 7 that we looked at last year, but it'll probably be helpful to quickly recap what it is that we've seen there. So, if you've got your Bible open on your lap, open it up to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll just quickly flip through and see what it is that we've seen in these chapters. When you open up to chapter 1, one of the things that gets stressed right from the beginning of Matthew's Gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the saviour, that he is the rescuer that God had promised to send. Right through the pages of the Old Testament, God was promising that he would send his rescuer, his saviour. And look at the very opening verses there. We're told that Jesus Christ is the, is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the one who's in the line of the, of the saviour. He's the one who has come to save God's people. Verse 20, it's announced to Joseph that Jesus would be the one who saves God's people. Verse 23, Jesus is even described as being God with us. Chapter 2, we see the wise men who travel halfway around the world to bring gifts to give to this new king who has been born. Matthew goes to great lengths to impress on us that Jesus is God's saviour, God's king who has come into the world. Now for those who know their Old Testament, reading through these opening chapters of Matthew, you get a little bit of a deja vu experience. You start to think, well, gee, that sounds very familiar to things that have happened already in the Old Testament. See, in a strange way, it looks as though Jesus is reenacting Israel's history. Did you notice that they go down to Egypt and then come back? Uh, That's what Joseph and his brothers did, went down to Egypt and then came back to the land. They passed through the Jordan River, just like Israel did on their way to the Promised Land. We see Jesus spending 40 days in the wilderness. Gee, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, didn't they? So the original readers of Matthew's Gospel, they would have been picking up on all of these clues they would have seen what it is that Jesus is doing here. He's reliving Israel's history in his own life. But the difference is, Jesus is getting it right. Jesus continues to be faithful to God. Jesus doesn't mess up the way that Israel did. Jesus continues to trust God all the way through. 
And then when you get to the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus goes up on top of a mountain. What Old Testament event is that supposed to make us think of? Well, Moses went up onto Mount Sinai to receive the law, to figure out how it is that they're going to live as God's people. And that's what Jesus gives in chapters 5, 6 and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. He gives us the Sermon on the Mount, tells us how it is that we are to live as his people, how it is that we are part of this covenant that Jesus has come to establish. See, that's what we see in the beginning of Matthew, in those first seven chapters. Jesus is God's promised saviour. Jesus is the faithful one. And Jesus is the one who outlines how it is that we are to live as God's people. So when you get to the beginning of chapter 8, it's as though Matthew knows that we've heard a lot about Jesus and we've heard a lot from Jesus, but it's time to back it up with some actions. Time to start doing something, Jesus. If Jesus is the Messiah that God has sent, if he is the one who's come to save God's people, if he's the one who's come to establish the kingdom, if he's the king, then he needs to back it up with actions. He needs to show us that he's the king. And that's exactly what we see in these next two chapters of Matthew. Have a look at it there. Chapter 8, verse number 1. Jesus comes down from the mountain and straight away performs three miracles. Heals a man of leprosy, heals the centurion's servant, and finally we see him healing many people, including a mother-in-law. And look at the first one there. We can get a bit blasé about the miracles. We can kind of think, oh yeah, we've heard that story before. But you've got to try and realise what's actually happening here. We get a bit blasé about healings because we know that people can go into hospital and have heart transplants or can have serious surgery done and things repaired. So we tend to think that what Jesus is doing is something small. But in the life of this man, this is incredibly significant. So here's a man with leprosy. Here's a man who would have been completely ostracised by his community for the rest of his life. Wouldn't have been able to come in contact with any other people. Wouldn't have been able to come within a couple of metres of any other people because of his disease. There's no cure and there's no place for him in society while he has this disease. There's no leprosy foundation who are working on drugs to deal with this. There's no leprosy mission support group to to help him through this difficult time. He's just shut out from his community, unclean, cut off, denied a normal life, couldn't get a hug from a family member, couldn't go into their home. And with just a word, Jesus not only heals this man, but gives him back his life. And did you notice that straight after Jesus heals him, I don't know if you noticed this when it was read, straight after he's healed, Jesus says, right, now go down to the priest. Do you know what that's about? That's about making sure that you are recognised as being clean and welcome back into the community. So he hasn't just healed the leprosy, he's brought this man back into the community. He'll now be able to attend the next family function. He'll be home for his next birthday. He'll be there for the family barbecue. And following this miracle, we see that Jesus heals more people. But have a look at what it says in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities 
and carried our sorrows. Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant, the servant who would come to save God's people. And he's doing it. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Here's the one God promised doing what God promised he would do. And it doesn't end with the healings. You get to chapter 8 and we see Jesus calming storms and casting out demons. Turn to the next chapter and we see Jesus raising people from the dead. But amongst all of this, there's a bit of a surprise in these chapters. Jesus is doing remarkable things. He truly is backing up his words with actions. But did you see where the opposition comes from? Did you see who it is that's criticising him for the things that he's doing? Plenty of people in the United States who are opposed to Barack Obama. Uh, It's no surprise where that opposition comes from. It comes from the other side of politics in the United States, doesn't it? The Republicans, they denounce everything that he says and does. And it's obvious that's their responsibility, that's their job, they're the other side of politics. Uh, When Julia Gillard stands up to speak, you know who's going to be standing up just a few moments later to criticise her, don't you? It'll be Tony Abbott, that's the way it works in politics. One party says one thing, the other party says another. But do you know the strange thing about the opposition to Jesus? It's from his own party. His own team, the very people who should be thrilled that the Messiah has come, they're the ones who are opposed to him. It's the religious leaders, the ones who are waiting for God to send his saviour, they're the ones who are coming out with the most stinging criticisms. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 3. They're critical that Jesus would make the claim to be able to forgive sins. Verse 10 They're critical of the company that Jesus keeps, the fact that he keeps hanging around with sinners and tax collectors. Uh, Down to verse 34, they're accusing Jesus of being on side with Satan in the things that he's doing. These are serious criticisms that are being made of Jesus. Jesus has only just begun his ministry and the people who should be most excited that his ministry has begun are the ones who are out there opposing him. And as we see Matthew's gospel unfold, it's only going to get worse. But equally surprising is where the support comes from, the people who believe in Jesus. Go back to chapter 8. And find verse number 5. And let me just read through this story for you. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion. Now, a centurion is a Roman soldier occupying force in Israel at the time. Hated by all the people in Israel. When a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralysed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell one to go and he goes and I tell the one to come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. 
No one in Israel seems to believe me as much as this guy. The very guy you wouldn't expect to even be slightly interested in Jesus is the one who recognises his power and his authority and wants to place his complete trust in him. He says, Jesus, you've just got to say the word, one word from you and I know that my servant will be healed. He's a man who truly understands who Jesus is. Shows this extraordinary faith in Jesus. And the sad thing is that the people who should be showing faith in Jesus just seem to be criticising him. It's a theme we're going to see a lot more of as we continue to look through Matthew over these next few weeks. You may have heard of this man. His name is Ernest Shackleton. He was a British explorer who made a few attempts to get to the South Pole. Uh, he wanted to be the first, uh, first person to actually make that trip all the way to the South Pole. And in preparing for one of his expeditions, the story goes that he actually placed an ad in the London Times newspaper. And this was what the ad said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful honour and recognition in event of success. What would you do if you saw that ad in the newspaper? Would you be thinking, that's the thing for me? That's what I'm looking for, small wages, bitter cold, doubtful safe return? That's the journey I want to do. Yeah, it's not as if he's trying to put a positive spin on it. It's not as if he's trying to say, look, there's great things about this. He just seems to be outlining all of the difficulties. But I think Shackleton may have actually borrowed that technique from Jesus. Because you have a read through these chapters and Jesus talks a lot about what it will mean to be a disciple, what life will be like. And he doesn't pull any punches, does he? I mean, following Jesus, according to Jesus, will be tough. Have a look at what it says in in chapter 8 and find verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place for his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. It kind of sounds like he's trying to talk people out of it, doesn't it? I mean, is that, what you, is that the way you try and enlist support? By telling people how tough this is going to be? Uh, turn over to chapter 10 and it only gets worse. Chapter 10, verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Verse 17, be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. Verse 22, all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is not easy. Jesus is calling his followers to what may be a tough life. And he wants them to be totally clear about this. Because what Jesus is calling them to do is important. In fact, it's the most important thing that you can ever be involved in in your life. 
Can I get you to turn back to chapter 9 and find verse 35? These are some of the most wonderful verses in Matthew, I think. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I love that line where it says that Jesus sees the crowd and they're like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus acts out of compassion for these people. He knows what they need. They need him to be the shepherd. They need him to be the saviour. That's the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom has come. Jesus, the king, has come. And it's a wonderful image that he uses at the end there, isn't it? The fields are white for harvest. The harvest is ready. There's work to be done. In fact, there's even an urgency about this task, isn't it? When the fields are ready, you've got to get out there and do it. You can't say, you know what, I might just leave it until later on in the year. No, you've got to do it now. Because the harvest is ready. And did you see what Jesus says? He says, ask God to send out labourers into that harvest. And then have a look at the beginning of chapter 10. What does Jesus do? Sends his disciples out. See, this is a vital part of being followers of Jesus. Is being part of this harvest. Being the workers that are out there in the vineyard. Well, a new year, as I said, is underway for us as a church. And guess what? The fields are still white for harvest. And labourers are still needed. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you've signed up as one of the labourers. Every single one of us will have a part to play in this harvest. During my holidays when I was at Theological College, I used to go out and work on a wheat farm out at Forbes. My brother-in-law worked on this farm and they were desperate for labourers because they're trying to harvest the wheat in uh, in December uh, to get it all off uh, to the silos. There were dozens of people involved. On, on what was probably a fairly quiet farm during most of the year, harvest time, there were people running around everywhere driving trucks, driving harvesters, but there were also people in the office doing all of the paperwork. There were people at the silos who were collecting the paperwork and weighing the grain that you bring in. There's a whole range of different people involved in the harvest. It's not just one person with one job. There are dozens of people with dozens of different kinds of jobs. And it's like that with the harvest that Jesus is talking about as well. We're not all going to do the same job But we're all working towards the same end, I hope. That we're all here because the fields are still white for harvest. And there's still a need for the labourers to get out there and be involved in that harvest. And again, let's be clear, Jesus didn't say this would be easy. In fact, he said it would probably be tough. But it's the reason that the church exists. It's the reason this church exists. It's the reason that this church has been here for close to 150 years on this site. 
if you are someone who has that trust in Jesus, then you've signed up as a labourer. We are here to ensure that people get to hear that good news about Jesus. To know that the kingdom has come, that the king has come. So as this year begins, can I ask you to do one thing? Can I ask you to recommit yourself as a labourer? To be committed to being involved in that work? There's a whole variety of different jobs to be done, but there is a job for everyone, and we're all working towards that one end.